0: from a company called Fast.ai, Jeremy Howard and Rachel Thomas, uh, founding researchers, they call themselves. How are you guys doing? Hi there. We're doing well. Good. Welcome to the Future Tech Podcast. Thanks so much for coming. I appreciate it.
1: Thank you. It's great to be here. Thank you, Rich.
0: Yeah, so for starters, I always find it's better to have the guests introduce themselves and tell what they do. You know, I tend to screw it up. So, yeah, if you guys would... Yeah, please let me know what fast.ai does and what you guys do there.
2: Okay, um fast.ai is trying to make deep learning, which is a kind of area of AI where a ton of breakthroughs are happening right now, more accessible and easier to use. Um, And so traditionally a lot of materials in this field kind of assume you have a graduate level math background and are very exclusive. And we created a course, um, kind of a practical course for coders to kind of kind of tear down that exclusiveness and make this field more accessible.
1: Um, we also do uh, research into um, foundational methods which can make it uh, easier for more people to use this field. Uh, so we kind of iterate between doing the research and then and then teaching and back and forth like that.
0: Yeah. So all right, we'll we'll get into deep learning and artificial intelligence in a minute, but. Let's start from a different angle. What makes it inaccessible to uh, people and companies that would consider using it? Do they not even know what it's capable of? Do they just think it's like the movies and the Terminator? I mean, what are the stumbling blocks that your educational work and your um, smoothing the way helps do?
2: So, there are, there are a lot of stumbling blocks. Um, one is that, and this is starting to change a little bit, but a lot of experts in the field weren't actually writing down or sharing the practical information you needed for a while. Um, and so, kind of, people publish these theoretical papers that don't actually have the information you would need to implement this, um, is one big issue.
1: Um, okay. I think, you know, overall, the, the, the issue is a um, level of, of exclusivity which is totally unnecessary, but uh, causes a lot of people I've spoken to at organizations to be kind of terrified of getting into this field. It, it seems like you need a PhD from Stanford and uh, 10 plus years of expertise, <laughs> and that you can only have you know, gone to one of a small number of exclusive institutions, and that you need millions of GPUs and a huge expensive cluster and petabytes of data. Um, and all of this exclusivity <clears throat> it's very self serving, I think to the people that have promoted this uh, idea, um but it's left okay. a lot of organizations feeling like they that this is possibly beyond them and that they wouldn't know um, even where to start. I think increasingly um, more and more organizations are aware that deep learning is something which could make a significant difference, and that's changed um, about. Two and a half years ago, I I did a talk which ended up on TED.com, which introduced the potential of deep learning. And at that point, that was a key issue, was that people just didn't know this is a thing and that this is such a world-changing thing. Um, In the last two and a half years, I think things have changed so that now a lot of people are aware of the power of this, but they're not aware of how how they could do it themselves.
0: Well, let's start uh, gently. So what is, you know... Talk about what is artificial intelligence and then talk about deep learning specifically. What's different about it versus this umbrella term AI?
2: Uh, so deep learning is a very specific class of algorithms, also referred to as uh, many-layered neural networks. Um, and okay. deep learning is typically applied to kind of very specific problems. Sometimes people talk about like artificial general intelligence you know, and this idea of kind of creating a computer that's a bit like a human, whereas in deep learning... Um, that's kind of like using neural nets for a specific task. Like I want to be able to recognize pictures, or I want to be able to recognize speech and you know write it in text.
1: So artificial intelligence is you know one of these rather umbrella terms that is possibly so vague as to be meaningless. <laughs> um, it refers to really anything that gets your computer to behave um, intelligently under some definition of intelligently, and it covers a variety of techniques that have been around for 60 plus years. This particular approach that Rachel's talking about of using multi-layered neural networks. Um, Although it's been around for a long time, it's only been the last five or six years that it's really started producing state-of-the-art results. But what's um, really interesting about it is that it's it's fundamentally an exponential technology, which kind of means that the more time that goes on, it gets multiplicatively better. So since that time five or six years ago, when it started achieving a handful of -of state-of-the-art results, it's improved multiplicatively every year since then, um, now reaching the point where it is um, exceeding human performance at some pretty um, human types of things such as recognizing the contents of images or uh, understanding spoken Chinese or English speech.
0: Hmm. Okay, so what makes deep learning particularly suited? To being a useful uh, type of AI versus you know just a neural network or uh, you know machine learning well, or these other new, buzzwords it, it, that it people is, hear it, about. Like, it is just how a neural work? network.
1: So 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 deep learning is a neural network which has got more than one hidden layer. So basically, neural networks have been around for many decades. Um, it turns out that if you add more hidden layers, they become exponentially more powerful. And they require, um, as opposed to if you only have one, it turns out it requires exponentially more memory, which is a bad thing. So this uh, increase in the number of layers in neural networks has um, had huge consequences. Um, Basically, empirically, I think, is the most um, compelling evidence here that not only are um, uh, deep learning or deep neural networks the best approach for the the vast majority of computer vision problems, most natural language processing problems, uh, increasingly time series and structured data analysis problems. Um, But as I mentioned before, furthermore, they're actually showing better than human performance uh, in areas like understanding language and understanding pictures, which, you know, there's never been a technology which is, you know, just, it, it empirically achieved anything like these results before.
2: Yeah, so far it kind of seems like almost any problem it's applied to it gets state-of-the-art results in,
1: um, so is you know, really exciting. Yeah, and so like if if your organization is trying to do anything from, um, you know, <clears throat> understand the uh, 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 gene expression in, in genome data you have through to figuring out how many cans of Coca-Cola you might need to sell at each of your stores next week, to trying to build a robot that can, or, or a self-driving car indeed, which can safely navigate an environment, um, these are all things where deep learning is likely to give you the, um, the best results and also, interestingly, not require very much programming.
0: And I was just going to well, give Let's that talk about a, a specific oh. use case. Um, you know, let's talk about, um, I don't know, you, you go ahead and give me one. I can give you one, like let's say um, I'm going to show you a series of pictures and I want you to tell me if there's a cat in the picture. Now let's talk about that, and then let's go into like another use case. Sure. If I wanted a machine to do that, for for instance, or um, you know, how how would it do it? How does the deep I mean, learning do it?
2: So a a key thing you're doing is that you'll have a like you teach the machine what you want it to do by having a training set. So you kind of would have pictures of cats that are labeled cat that you're um, training the algorithm with. So the algorithm kind of learns what the best weights are for. It has a lot of different parameters that it's fitting. Um, But by giving it examples, you're kind of saying what you want the output
1: to be. So basically, the way this works in practice is rather than programming a computer by telling it the rules that you need to recognize, so rather than saying, this is what a cat looks like, instead you give it examples. So you say, here's a thousand examples of cat pictures, here's a thousand examples of dog pictures. And it's funny you mentioned this particular example, because in um, our online course, this is actually the first (laughs) thing people do is recognize dogs from cats. In practice, they have to write... Uh, six lines of code, uh, have one folder in the computer containing pictures of cats, one folder in their computer containing pictures of dogs, um, okay. and then you press go and you wait about three or four seconds, and uh, at the end of that, you've got something you can feed a new image into, and it'll tell you with 98% accuracy whether it's a cat or a dog.
2: And I think it's. I want to highlight this, Jeremy, saying that this is different from a rule-based system. You're not having to come up with any, like, facts about cats having fur or being a certain shape or size. You're really just giving an
1: example. In fact, that six lines of code I mentioned, you can use the exact six lines of code to recognize um, which images contain um, You could see uh, which type in. of fish
2: has been caught. This is another problem of identifying illegal fishing. To
1: yeah, you to could figure out fish. what kind of uh, disease a, a, a mole on somebody's skin is or whatever. You know, They all would require basically the same six lines of code.
0: Well, how, do you, how does the computer do that without having rules? You know, How does it know? Let's, let's take cats. So without telling it, a cat's supposed to have two eyes and they supposed to be spaced approximately this distance, and ears, and paws, and whiskers. How does the computer know from training data what what is what it doing to figure it out? What ends up
2: happening is that um, um, so there are many layers to this network, and by seeing lots of examples, different layers learn to kind of recognize different um, different aspects. And so often, the first layer is just picking up edges and noticing there's an edge here, or this is kind of what a diagonal edge looks like. And then lower layers are kind of, or higher layers are putting those together and can say, hey, this is a triangle. Um, And then the kind of deepest layers will have things of being able to recognize, like, this is an eye, or this is a spiral, Um, so kind of you have uh, this increasing complexity that's being recognized
1: at different layers. The the way this is set up is actually was originally heavily inspired by neuroscience. Um, So the way our eyes work is there are certain types of sensors, you know, rods and cones, and then there's a certain way that the information from those is combined. And um, when people looked at it, they realized that there are certain operations from linear algebra that, you know, reasonably closely or somewhat closely replicate these ideas. Um, And so basically what people originally did was to say, okay, well, let's try and construct something which is loosely inspired by what we can see in in terms of this nerve connectivity in the brain or neuron connectivity uh, in the brain and the um, optic nerves. And so the the... The uh, idea of this as being a kind of a mathematical function is a little counterintuitive because it's a mathematical function with hundreds of millions of weights in. So um, yeah. although you know it works exactly the same way as learning any other parameters in a function, um, it's at such a scale that, you know, it's able to create this, this kind of hierarchy that Rachel described, where it can learn to recognize edges and combine them into corners and then combine them into textures and then combine that into recognizing fur and then combine that into recognizing ears and then combine that into recognizing heads. Um, it, it's, it's really the scale of this is well beyond anything that we can kind of intuitively understand. And so it kind of manages to do things which... At first glance, seems surprising for something that is actually incredibly simple.
2: And there's actually a theorem decades ago that kind of anything could be represented with a neural network, um, but at that point there wasn't the computational power for it to work in practice, or the quantity well, let's, of let's data con-
0: needed. All right, let's continue with the example. So we show it um, pictures of cats, labeled cats. You know, so you probably show it drawings of cats and big fat ones, and skinny ones, and ones with one ear, and you know, I guess a range. Um, then you show it a new picture that's not labeled and you ask it to identify if that is a cat or not. And you said you've gotten it to like 98% accuracy that it can recognize a cat, right?
1: Right, right. And, you okay. know, in Texas, it's probably higher than that. I mean, the, the data sets that we work with or everybody pretty much works with are very noisy. So when we actually looked at the 2% <clears> that it was getting wrong, Quite often it turned out that it had not been labeled correctly in the first place or it didn't actually contain a cat or a dog or that it was a, um, you know, an advertisement for a cat that didn't actually contain a picture of a cat in it or whatever. Or it was kind
2: of blurry and we couldn't even tell what it was.
1: Yeah. Right, right, right. Gotcha. Okay. And Um, and it's
2: also important to note that um, you're not just showing the network cats. You're also showing it pictures of things that are not cats. And so in our example of um, cats and uh, dogs, you're showing it both cats and dogs, Um, but there's a huge competition where they show uh, 1,000 different categories of images. But so it kind of needs to see uh, what the alternatives are.
1: And so what what you've been describing then is, you know, like what happens after you've trained it. So after you've trained it, you have a model now that can recognize cats from dogs, say. Um, The actual training, you know, uh, using the lines of code that we developed takes, you know, three or four seconds. <clears throat> then the next stage is to go out into the wild and use that. So you might uh, you know, put that on your mobile phone and create a little app out of it, and now you can point your um, mobile phone's camera at something. And that, once it's trained, it only takes about 0.02 seconds um, for it to recognize what something is. And so that's why this works really well for self-driving cars, for example. So increasingly, people are using exactly this approach In self driving cars, in order to figure out, you know, are there any pedestrians around? Um, Are there any trees that we're about to run into? Whereabouts is the middle of the road? And so forth, um, using basically exactly the same kind of approach that we just described.
0: How important is the positive uh, training data versus the negative? Like, how do you know the mix of stuff that's necessary to tune the learning to the right uh, degree of accuracy?
1: Um, in practice, these things uh, require a certain amount of experimentation, but they're not terribly sensitive. Um, in general, if, you're, um, if if the data that you train with has a similar mix to the data that you're likely to see in the wild, um, that's likely to be a good rule of thumb.
2: Yeah, so except for um, exceptions where what you're looking for is incredibly rare. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you have something like trying to identify credit card fraud and most credit card transactions are fine, Um, you might want to show it a higher percentage of credit card fraud than exists in the wild. Yeah, so um, for example,
1: a couple of years ago, I started a company to do medical imaging diagnostics to try and, and so initially we tried to improve the ability to diagnose cancer early. Um, Mm -hmm. Luckily, most people don't have lung cancer. So we grabbed, you know, a thousand examples of people that did have cancer Mm -hmm. and 5,000 examples of people that didn't have cancer. Um, because we you know, wanted to make sure we had enough examples of cancer that the system could learn what it looked like.
2: And this was using CT scans, so images.
0: Right. Okay. Sure. So, uh, yeah, that's interesting. Um, so let's let's talk about the cancer example. What was the accuracy sure. of it finding cancer versus what was the accuracy of it? Uh, like, a, what was the accuracy of the false positive versus the false negative? That's my question.
1: Sure. So, I mean, you can always tune that to any kind of combination you want, because it returns a probability. So what we did was we um, calibrated it uh, and compared it to a panel of four human radiologists. Um, And what we found was that, not surprisingly, the human radiologists prefer to be conservative. So they had a um, 7% false negative rate, so they missed the cancer 7% of the time. Um, we didn't have any false negatives in our in our sample wow. comparative sample. And then for false positives, um, I can't remember the exact numbers. So basically it was very, very high for the humans, like over half, I think were false positives, and really? we were um I think we were like fifty percent better or something. like we were certainly our false positives were a lot rarer, which meant if you used a system like that, not only would you have less people, You know, with cancer failing to be noticed, uh, you would also have a lot less unnecessary biopsies. Um, But much more importantly, the computer can do it in well under a second, whereas uh, um, a human takes ten to fifteen minutes. Um, And there's a huge shortage of doctors in the world, um, in the developing world in particular. There's a ten x to twenty x shortage. So this kind of technology, um, you know, could could save millions of lives.
2: And, and often these systems would be used together with a human. And so you could have a computer kind of flagging, like, these are the ones we definitely want to show to the human radiologist, which allows the human radiologist to kind of work much more quickly when they're working in partnership with a, a diagnostic system.
0: Yeah. So once you once you trust the, um, the AI system, it gives you a, like a confidence level, a probability, right? So the ones that aren't absolute, I guess the lower confidence levels would be given to a human to look, to double-check, right?
1: Right. I mean, and also, perhaps more importantly, it points out the areas which may have issues, uh, so it allows the human to to focus in on the interesting parts of the image. Um, it actually takes, the reason it takes 10 to 15 minutes is it just takes a really long time to study every part of every slice of a CT scan. So if a computer can kind of let you know you know, these are the three bits that you're likely to be interested in. That's going to save mm-hmm. a lot of time and also make them more accurate. That's very interesting.
0: Okay. Um, so, what do you see? Are these stumbling blocks? You said you talked about people being terrified at one point. When do you approach industry, or, is, or does industry come to you and say, "Hey, we heard about this deep learning stuff. Do you think it'll work for our application?" Like, or does both happen? And And when it happens, what are the fears that companies and people have about employing a system like this?
1: Um, So we kind of, because we're just small, you know, we have to take more of an approach of people come to us. And not only do people come to us, but people come to, you know, the online course that we have created. We don't have time to do really any consulting. Um, So people, yeah, so people seem to find us. Um, There's over 50,000 people have started the course already. Um, wow. And then we have these um, forums uh, where uh, these people then talk to us and to each other about what kinds of things they're, they're working on. <coughs> so we know that people who have been through the course have done everything from um, uh, analysing uh, the noises heard in rainforests to find uh, examples of illegal logging through to tracking mouse movements in, you know, uh, huge um, kind of anti-fraud systems to try and predict uh, fraudsters, uh, through to trying to um, uh, improve the accuracy and performance of uh, radiology in Africa uh, and so forth. So people kind of... yeah. So people hear about us one way or another. They they do the course. They see dozens of examples of say, the results in a wide variety of areas. And we're constantly then kind of telling our students like, you know, this week you should try to, you know, apply this to a project that you're interested in or you have access to and try and use these kinds of techniques. But during the course, uh, people end up yeah, building a lot of um, a lot of cool stuff, and then after the course, people tend to stick around in this forum community and uh, keep on keep on telling us about what they're doing and asking for help and giving others help. So it's kind of trying to create a really high leverage approach by having every student that's right. going through this course effectively become part of a peers helping peers community.
2: And and one message we're well, me, still trying to get out to yeah, companies. Oh. I would just say a lot of companies still think that they need to hire a Stanford PhD to be able to do this. Um, And so we're really trying to get the message out there that they can train the smart employees they already have to be able to do this. I
1: mean, not only can they, but probably they should. It's easier, (laughs) Because, you know, if you hire um, some uh, uh, computer science or math PhD straight out of university, they're not going to understand very much about the mechanics of, you know, um, selling cans of soda or um, you know uh, saving rainforests or or indeed you know identifying lung cancer. Um, whereas the people who are inside your organization are there because they do know a lot about this stuff. and so it's you know we found it's actually much easier to teach the domain experts how to use deep learning as a tool than it each that it is to teach people that already understand deep learning how to kind of have that a uh, deep, nuanced understanding of, of, of the kind of strategy inside some domain so that they actually recognize what problems to solve and how to make kind of, um, you know, thoughtful decisions and compromises and so forth.
0: Um, Tell me more about the course. Does it cost? How much does it cost? How long is it? Um, do you have different levels or is it just one course?
2: So the course is completely free um, and it's available at course.fast.ai um, and it. Came out of we taught an in-person course at the University of San Francisco's Data Institute, um, and that was taught in-person to 100 students, and we recorded everything and put it online. Um, and the part one of the course was a seven-week evening course with the expectation that students would spend about 10 hours a week on it, so 70 hours total. And then we just finished teaching of part two of the in-person, and we're going to release that online soon.
1: And so part one um, describes itself as practical deep learning for coders. So it assumes that everybody who takes it has had at least one year of coding experience. And the idea is that by the end of it, you're going to understand all of the current best practices in the areas for which deep learning is a you know, reasonably mature um, technology. Part two, um, which we've finished recording and we're just uh, working on getting it online now, Um, on the other hand is the uh, cutting edge um, deep learning research for coders. And so this is for people who have finished part one and want to go to the next level of understanding the most recent research papers and perhaps uh, working on fairly novel problems. the, you know as Rachel said, it, it, it doesn't cost anything because for us this is a entirely a, um, it's a mission for us. You know We basically think that this has the potential to, and in fact, we know now from the results of our early students that that, that, that this is um, having a hugely positive impact on the world when people who you know, are all over the world are actually taking this and making a difference by using this technology. So one one example that I'm really fond of is a a fellow in India who has used this to build a system that can help farmers in India um, basically with their insurance claims um, by using deep learning to analyze uh, all of the satellite imagery of India. Um, So there have been 5,000 Indian farmers every year commit suicide um, because of this problem. And, this and the is, yeah. problem
2: is that they're taking these uh, very predatory loans from kind of loan sharks that then threaten them with violence and harass their families, but they're not able to qualify for better loans because they can't prove how much land they own or what type of crops they're growing.
1: Yeah. So, you know, this is something that like, you know, Rachel or I would never know this was a problem or, or how to solve it. Um, but one of our students um, is right in the middle of all of that. And so he, he immediately recognized that this kind of technology would... Be very helpful here, and he's started doing it.
2: And he was part of our international fellowship program, so with the in-person version, we had both diversity fellowships and international fellowships, um, because we really wanted to broaden the scope of who uh, who's doing deep learning.
0: What are some of the, um, you know, you talked about this application, which is interesting and unusual. What's the, um, some of the most unusual applications of uh, deep learning you've seen? Were impactful? What do you think? You know, you talked about identifying cancer, which is tremendous, and, you know, land rights in India. uh, But uh, anything else that's, like, strange or amazing to you that just blows you away that it's possible that it can be done?
2: One of our students is a um, natural language researcher in Pakistan. And Pakistan has 70 spoken languages, and none of them have that many resources. And as part of our course, he put together the largest corpus of Urdu texts that's been assembled and trained word embeddings on that. Um, and that'll be a really helpful resource for anyone studying Urdu or trying to translate other materials into or out of the language.
1: In fact, the, the, so this, is already, this approach has already been widely used in the English language. Um, whenever you use Google Translate, you're basically using that kind of system. Um, the Chinese company Baidu has a speech recognition system that can recognize both English and Mandarin speech. More accurately than um, humans can so with this kind of approach now we you know this is the kind of thing which can allow folks that speak Urdu in Pakistan to also use this technology. Um, I think overall the most impactful um, <clears throat> areas that I'm aware of I think medicine is the most impactful area. Um, there's a hospital in Los Angeles for example that actually has data scientists go on rounds with doctors every morning and they've been using deep learning to predict the mortality of every patient in order to understand which patients need a um, higher level of, of medical care. Um, and, you know, that's, that kind of thing's a fantastic example. Yeah.
2: In our, in our course, we had several Alzheimer's researchers that were taking the course. I know that's being applied to Alzheimer's. We also had someone that was working on, um, I think, a wearable device for Parkinson's patients to help their doc- uh, doctors better monitor the progress of their disease.
1: Yeah, so I think overall medicine would be one of the most uh, socially impactful areas. Um, I mean, financially, though, obviously, self-driving cars is hugely important. There's plenty of people using this for, you know, the very high-value uh, area of, of kind of equity trading and hedge funds and bonds and so forth.
2: And this also just uh, reminds me, um, a lot of our students, uh, particularly kind of those in other countries, are working on more obscure applications. Um, don't have access to, you know, these huge uh, computation centers or servers with tons of GPUs. And so in our, both in our research and in our teaching, we're really interested in ways to best leverage this technology for people with few resources. they so are interested in people who have small data sets, who can't afford much GPU time. Um, so that's a real area of focus for us that's not necessarily an area of focus kind of for the rest of uh, um, deep learning
0: I have a question that will probably stump you because I've never gotten an answer to it. How much training data is enough for a given application? And are there formulas you can use to get you to a certain confidence level? Like everyone tells me, oh, you just need a lot of it. Well, what's a lot of it? How do you know?
1: Yeah, so, I mean, it's both a very easy and a very hard question. Um, It's very easy because um, there's some level of model performance which is going to do what you need to do. So if you need something that's capable of safely driving a car or something which can recognize tumors better than doctors or whatever, you know, there's some benchmark level. And so it's actually very easy just to take whatever data you currently have and train a model and see if it's good enough and if it's not, um, you can actually extrapolate very easily. You can try using half of that data and then a quarter of that data and then a tenth of that data. And you can basically extrapolate the curve um, of performance versus amount of data. And then that tells you exactly, well, very close to exactly, how much data you'll need to get the performance that you need. The uh, good news is that with deep learning nowadays, often you don't need very much data because of something called transfer learning, which is becoming increasingly important. Which is basically, it turns out that you can use a model that's been trained on a Fairly different problem, um, and basically take that model and use it as a starting point for training your model. And it often means that you need orders of magnitude less data, and you also get um, much uh, fewer errors. Um, so, with transfer learning, often it's not actually about how much data do I need, but are there other cheap to find and access data sources that I could use to create a starting point model for transfer learning.
2: The other technique that's often used, um, Jerry mentioned this earlier, is data augmentation. And that's where you can often kind of alter your data to make more. So like with the um, pictures of cats example, you can take a picture of a cat that you have and crop it in different ways, zoom in, rotate it vertically, um, apply a little bit of a color tint. And by doing things like that, you're kind of um, multiplying the amount of data you have. Because it'll, you know, it'll still look like a cat as long as you're altering it in a way that's uh, reasonable for
1: how cats look. So, you know, in general as a rule of thumb, we tell people if they have less than, you know, 100 or 150 items, you know, probably they're not going to have any luck with deep learning at all. Um, <coughs> once you've got um, at least that amount, depending on your ability to use transfer learning and data augmentation, um, <coughs> and of course the complexity of the problem you're trying to solve then you may well be um, in a position to get good results. But you typically don't need millions of data points, do you? Oh, certainly not. No, not in general. Unless you're working on a type of data that is totally, totally different to anything that anybody's worked on before.
0: Hmm. Okay. Um, So people can take your course. They can ask questions. They can get help with projects. What if they get stuck? What are uh, some other resources they can use or code bases or... You know, other ways to get themselves uh, to a, a point where they could start solving their problems if they get stuck?
1: Yeah, so by far the best resource is um, the forums that we have, which is at forums.fast.ai. Um, actually, regardless of whether you're using the course, anybody can use them. And it's, they're extremely popular. So, pretty much any time a question gets asked, uh, it gets answered often within a few minutes. Um, it's also oh, well. great for people to try and answer questions themselves um, because it really gets them, you know, like if in, even if they're not quite sure of their answer, they can make a start and then somebody else will help by correcting pieces that aren't quite right.
2: We're also really encouraging people to start study groups in their area. And so we know of several companies where teams have started working through the course together and have regular meetings and people will often post in the forums, you know, I live in such and such city, is there anyone else um, in the city who is taking this course and interested in studying together?
1: Yeah. So when we um, announced that we were going to be doing the in-person part two of the course, um, it turned out that there were these kind of lunchtime study sessions at, um, at Apple, at Airbnb, at Uber, um, and so forth, where those, those folks basically went, oh, that sounds great. And then they kind of came together to our in-person course. Um, we're also aware of um, people that have formed groups everywhere, from parts of India to parts of Africa. Um, we're obviously less familiar with those kinds of uh, remote examples, but it does seem like we meet somebody every week who who says that they're part of a, you know, company or geographic uh, group of people that are working through our course together.
0: So you don't have an AI chatbot that runs the forum, do you?
1: <laughs> no.
0: I'm just teasing you. <laughs> I'm teasing you. <laughs>
1: I've got to say of all right. the, of all of the over of all of the over technologies chatbots <laughs> would have to be towards the top That's, uh,
0: <laughs> oh yeah, I'm not sure one that we're a big fan yeah I know yeah, we hate we hate them too I hate them too um, okay. all right last <laughs> couple of questions so you, you've got the course you're working on another course. What else does fast AI have? You have the forum what else uh, do you guys do as a company that you think is valuable to the um you know to the a i community and to businesses
2: mm. I and mean, just so something else, uh, kind of as a side thing, um, we do a fair amount of writing on our blog about data science, um, so we are kind of putting uh, putting essays out there. I have an Ask a Data Scientist Advice column there. This is all at fast.ai. Um, then
1: uh, the other thing that's going to be, it hasn't really happened yet, but there's going to be a lot more of, is the next stage of research, where we'll be taking all of the things which we've learned after teaching these two parts of the course and using them to create better tools. So I'm helping to launch a company which will be trying to um, improve the ability of humans and deep learning systems to work together through visualization techniques. Um, I'm starting to work on a um, the largest um, lung cancer data set that's been used in this kind of area to try and come up with uh, even better diagnostic tools. Um, we're also going to be looking to continue to simplify the libraries and systems so that The next time we do this course, hopefully we can teach twice as much in half the time to people with half the amount of expertise and experience.
2: Um, Yeah, our goal is whenever teaching to kind of find the things that are most painful or hardest to learn. And then when we return to our research, see if we can write better libraries and better tools so that the next time we teach it,
1: it'll be easier. Or find those areas which maybe it it didn't quite suit as well. So, for example, we actually discovered that Deep learning can create state-of-the-art results in time series analysis and in structured data analysis. These are perhaps the two most important areas for um, regular corporations. Uh, But it turned out that there's no libraries whatsoever to make that remotely easy. So that's like a key area that we're going to be wanting to do research and Mm -hmm. figuring out how to make that dramatically easier.
2: Very few people are applying deep learning to time series right now, and there's a lot of opportunity there.
0: What does that mean, time series data? Like, what's an example?
1: Um, so
2: sales. Oh. <laughs> yeah. I would say so sales data, so anything where you have, yeah, like daily uh, daily sales or profits.
1: Um, or, okay. you know, a number of people that are um, going to your hotel's or the um, measurements that you're getting from the um, sensors inside your um, oil wells as you drill. Oh, wow. uh, Or basically any any kind of IoT sensor would be a time series. Any kind of um, uh, corporate um, financial indicators will be time series. Uh, Any of the kinds of uh, technical indicators that are used in um, hedge funds are all time series. Uh, Mm. Okay, so oh, also, right. in, in, in medicine, you know, uh, ECGs um, uh, or um, electronic medical records, uh, they're all time series as well.
0: Okay, well, very good. Last, last question I have, and this is just uh, for my own curiosity. I've heard that um, AI systems sometimes will produce results and you don't understand how it did it. It'll it has its own literal like machine intelligence. It'll, there'll be emergent things that come from the AI that were unexpected. you have any right. examples of that? Anything that was like, whoa, that's pretty cool?
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, that, the, the lung cancer example I gave was exactly like that. There, there was four of us on that team. None of us had any medical background at all. And we were like, whoa, this thing is diagnosing cancer better than top radiologists. Um, we had no idea how it was doing it. Um, but it turns out that increasingly in the last couple of years, people are, it, 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 it's not invested in enough, that people are starting to invest in building the tools and systems that allow us to um, basically ask a neural network what it's doing and how it's doing it. And so we are starting to find some systems emerging that are actually allowing us to use deep learning, not just to solve predictive problems, but also to actually understand the kind of causal systems going on um, behind those, those problems. Okay. Well, very good.
0: I, you know, I know I kept you guys long. I, I apologize for that. But there's a lot to talk no about this topic. Yeah. So um, last, last question is how can it, – it's probably obvious, but um, how can people get involved and uh, you know, find your course and get to the forum? Just go to the website or –
2: Definitely. Yeah. So the course is at course.fast.ai. Our forums are at forums.fast.ai. And then our writing is at fast.ai. Um,
1: yeah. And I would just really encourage people to join the forums and, you know, say hi and ask the question and suddenly you'll find you're part of a global deep learning community and uh, you'll never look back.
0: <laughs> That's great. Well, Jeremy and Rachel, I, I really appreciate you coming and being guests on the podcast. And, uh, you know, thanks so much for your time.
2: Thanks for having yeah, us. Thank you.